0: shows. And whether it was, if you're an old timer like me, whether it was PBS's This Old House, or maybe ABC's Extreme Makeover Home Edition, or more along the modern era, HGTV's Fixer Upper, uh, the concept is pretty much the same. Uh, It's a complete renovation and updating of an older house that has seen better days. Uh, sometimes it was completely redone on the inside, sometimes on the outside, sometimes both. But but those shows have been, there's all kinds. I mean, there's, there's dozens of shows that are out there even today that deal with this matter of home improvement or, or flipping a house or, or remodeling a house or changing the, the whole dynamic of it. Uh, and, and while the reformation of a house can be profitable and beneficial, the reformation of an individual can be costly and destructive. What I mean by that is this, that spiritual danger awaits those who are looking to merely clean up their lives. Uh, people sometimes just looking for a way to clean up their lives. And, and, and our text warns and it instructs us about this danger. If that's the goal, just merely to clean up our lives, there's a danger there. And, and the text talks about it. And so as we go into the text, as you recall, the final rejection of Jesus has begun. The religious leaders of Israel have openly declared their opposition, claiming that the power of Jesus is sourced in Satan. They, they, they've made that accusation. They've made no bones about it. Uh, they, they, the the, the mask are off. The line in the sand has been made. They, make no, they, 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 they unequivocally let the the nation know let jesus know that they believe that his power is sourced in satan the people of israel when you look at the, that's the kind of the, the state of the religious leaders when you look at the state of the people the people of israel they are amazed at the power of jesus they're amazed at His miracles that He does. They're amazed at the works that He performs. They're amazed at His words as He speaks, they, 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 that He speaks to them with, with authority and, and, and so much unlike what, what they were used to hearing. But even though they were amazed at Jesus, they failed to recognize and acknowledge Him as their King. And in fact, as we've gone through, as this, as we kind of close out chapter 12 here, and as we've gone through these last two chapters in Matthew's Gospel... The leaders are kind of the focus in chapter twelve. And in chapter twelve, the the, the the rejection of Jesus by the leaders is evidenced by their open hostility. Just completely, openly hostile to them. In chapter eleven, the rejection of Jesus by the people is evidenced by their apathetic neutrality. They want Jesus, and they, they, they want Jesus in their midst because of the miracles he performs. I mean, who wouldn't want somebody around that can make, if you're sick, he can heal you. If you're hungry, he can feed you. Uh, if you have a death in the family, he can raise them from the dead. They wanted Jesus. They embraced Jesus in the sense that, that they, they wanted him because of his miracles, but only if Jesus plays by their rules. As long as he's doing his parlor tricks, and of course I'm not saying that his, they were parlor that they were tricks, but as long as he's, he's doing those things that, that that minister to their physical needs, they want him. But the moment he brings about the demands of discipleship, the moment he talks about following Jesus, no, we, we don't want that. Remember, he says, you know, I've played the harp, I've played the flute, and you haven't danced. And and we've done a dirge, and you haven't mourned. And and they're they're wanting Jesus to kind of be a puppet on the string that they can manipulate. That's how the people have been looking towards him. And knowing their rejection is certain. Jesus knows. He's been rejected by the leaders because of their open hostility. He's been rejected by the people because of their neutrality. Knowing the rejection is certain, Jesus gives one last warning, one last instruction prior to adapting his teaching method and focus in chapter 13. His teaching method changes in chapter 13. His focus changes in chapter 13. He knows the rejection the rejection is set in stone, that the cement has hardened. There's not going to be any changing. The people's hearts are hardened. the religious leaders' hearts are hardened and they're not going to change. And knowing that though, in his compassion and in his mercy and in his grace, he get our text is one final warning, one final piece of instruction to these folks whose hearts are not going to change. And in his warning and in his and and his, in, in, in his instruction, Jesus references two things. He talks about demonology and the possibility of repossession in verses 43 through 45. He talks about genealogy and the priority of relationship in verses 46 through 50. And so that's what we'll be looking at well, That's what we'll be looking at this morning. So as as we look in verses 43 through 45, Jesus is t- going to talk to them about demonology. So, let's get demonology 101 out of the way, okay? Because usually when you talk about demons, you know, okay, there's there's a lot of you know a lot of things. I mean, there's some people who, who see a demon under every rock. You know, it was the demon of hostility that made me yell at my wife. You know, or or you know it was the, it was the demon of, of, of jealousy that made me act this way. And some people are seeing demons under every rock. Uh, other people don't think de- that demons are something from the medieval times that you know uh, that only people who are uneducated believe in and think about. So, what we want to do before we get into the text is just kind of give a demonology 101. There are fewer, there are fewer than 120 verses in the scriptures that refer directly to either Satan or the devil. And that's not a lot. There are fewer than 120 verses that refer directly to either Satan or the devil. In the Old Testament, the two major passages of Scripture that are used to teach about him are found in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. But these are disputed passages. It talks about the king of Tyre. It talks about the king of Babylon. These are disputed passages regarding references to Satan. And we don't have time to go into all of that. But, but there is agreement, pretty much agreement on this is that while both kings in these pa- that both kings in these passages serve as a type of Satan, some people actually think that the passages are actually talking about Satan. Uh, but but there is at least agreement in the sense that that everybody will say, well, at least these two kings serve as types. And and here's the danger: when you use typology as a foundation for a doctrinal structure, it, it, it's tenuous at best. And so, some people have built their whole doctrine of satanology or their whole doctrine of demonology on Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, which uh, I think personally are are talking about specific kings. And yet, but those kings are a type of that they are empowered by Satan, they behave like Satan, and they serve as a type of Satan. So, what what can we tell you this morning? Where there's pretty much 100 percent agreement. As it relates to demons, and so I'm going to give you here about six things, and that doesn't mean that that's, there's only six, but there's pretty much 100 percent agreement on these six things as it relates to people who believe the scriptures, believe that there are that there are demons that exist, and, and so what what what, what what's the, what's the common held beliefs? The first thing is this that, that demons are created spiritual beings. They are created. Spiritual beings, they're not physical beings, they are created spiritual, they're created spirit beings, which simply means this, because they are created, they are automatically inferior. They are inferior to God. They are demons who are created spirit beings, all the spirit beings, whether they're demons or whether they're angels, all spirit beings are not eternal. They haven't been around as long as God has been around. If that's the case, then they're God. If that's the case, there's only one being who is eternal, and that's God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit have always existed. Always existed. Not so with us, not so with humanity, not so with spirit beings. They are created, which makes, which makes them inferior, automatically inferior to their creator. Demons are spirit beings who freely chose to join Satan in his rebellion against God. Scripture tells us about a third of them joined Satan in his rebellion against God. Now, the, uh, that's what we, now, now when that happened, is, is, that's debatable, whether it happened prior to creation or it happened after creation. I read a very interesting uh, journal article on the identity of Satan uh, that, that really will cause you to think. Uh, so whether it was before uh, creation or after creation, and where that rebellion occurred. Uh, pretty much, the standard teaching has been, uh, and, and it, it's kind of again, it's 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 not as it's not as certain as you might think it is. Is that this rebellion took place in heaven? That's not necessarily true. Uh, there's debate on that whether it took place in heaven or where it took whether it, whether it took place on earth. Uh, but you had this idea, but we can all agree on, regardless of when and where, we all agree that 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 demons are spirit beings who freely chose to join Satan in his rebellion against God. The third thing is is that demons have supernatural abilities. They have supernatural abilities, and they possess the ability of inhabiting the bodies of human beings. They are able to inhabit the bodies of human beings. Uh, And so those three things, for those who claim to believe the Scriptures and believe what the Scriptures teach in in its totality... Those three things are held in common as it relates to demons. The fourth thing is this, that demons are able to oppress believers. Believers can be demon-oppressed. Now, the idea of whether or not a a believer can be possessed by a demon, that's debatable. I don't think so, but there is debate on that. There are good people on both sides of that issue that believe that demons can possess a believer. I don't believe that's the case, but, but we all can agree on the fact that demons can oppress a believer—they can oppress a believer. Sorry, uh, they can can oppress a believer, and so uh, that's something that that is held in common agreement. Uh, the next thing in common agreement is the fact that this is their influence can be successfully resisted by believers. Even though demons can be oppressed by delie- by uh, by uh, demons can oppress believers, believers can. Res- successfully resist them. Scripture tells us, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. And then finally is the fact that demons have been defeated and damned to spend eternity in the lake of fire. Now there could probably be some other things that we could add to the list, but but these six things for certain are things that are pretty much agreed by everybody who holds to the Scriptures and what the Scriptures have to teach about demons. There's not a lot there. And quite frankly, there really doesn't even need to be a lot there. Our focus is upon God. It's not upon Satan. Uh, we don't, our focus needs to be upon God and not upon Satan. And so those are some things. So that kind of gets Demonology 101 out of the way as far as when we, when we talk about what's, what's going on here. So let's look at the text. Jesus warns the people and the leadership by telling a parable about a demon-possessed man in verses 43 through 45. He talks about an exorcism and an exile. And so you see that beginning there in verse 43. It says when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. So here you have this this Individual, man or woman, we don't know, it's a parable Jesus is, is talking about here. He talks about this person, and this person has a situation where the demon has been exercised from them. Not, again, the issue is not how that happened, That that's not the point. None of that is the point. That this person was demon-possessed, this person is no longer demon-possessed, and now this demon is looking for a place to dwell. It's Scripture can... You can use scripture to kind of maybe imply, scripture might imply, Jewish writings implied that demons that did not possess uh, bodies uh, would dwell in places like abandoned cities and, and dry places, uh, uh, waste, waste, waste areas, places of ruin. Uh, again, but that's, that's not here or there either. That's not part of the important point. The important point is, here is this individual who is demon-possessed An exorcism has occurred, the demon is left, this demon can't find a place to reside, and it decides to go back to the individual that it once inhabited. So you have this exorcism and exile. Then you have this receptive return. Look look again in in our text, beginning there in the middle of, of verse 44. The demon says, I'm going to return from which I came. And he says, and when it comes, it finds the house. Now the house is representative of this individual. This individual is being referred to as a house. It finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than themselves, and they enter and dwell there. So here you have this receptive return. Upon the demon's return to this individual, it finds that the individual is still receptive to the demon's presence because no superior power occupies that person. the person is referred to as a house. the demon comes back to this house and the house is clean it's in order it's been swept okay obviously this person has this house has no kids or grandkids okay uh, it, 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 it's clean and it's order and it's been swept so he, he makes that point there uh, but the demon comes back but but still there is not a superior power there. Their life now. Here's where here's where Jesus is beginning to make his point. Their life has been cleaned up. Their life has been cleaned up. It's been put in order. It's been swept. Uh, it, it's 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 been made clean. It's been it's been put in order. But they are in a state of neutrality, much like these people have been. They're in a state of neutrality. They have. Put off, but failed to put on. The individual's cleaned up life, and that's all it is. It's a cleaned up life, allows the possibility of repossession by a greater number of demons. It says he he he, he goes and brings with it seven other spirits. He brings a whole complete complete load. He brings the totality. Of demons with him to go possess that individual, and then Jesus closes out by giving the perilous point. The ESV uh, translates it: uh, He says, "And," and that word can also be "so." And I think I think that's a better because here, so so because Jesus is now applying this what's happened to this person. He says, "So let me read it this way." Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. So, the last state of that person is worse than the first. The last state of that person is worse than the first. The individual is worse off. There was a time when their life was cleaned up. There was a time when their house was swept and put in order. But that's all that it was. A cleaning up. There was no superior power brought into that house, brought into that person's life. And because of that, they are still open and receptive to demons. And because of that, the demon has come back and that demon has brought with them seven more demons. And Jesus says, they're worse off now than they were prior to the situation, before the exorcism. And now Jesus gives the application. Look at the latter part of verse uh, 45 so also will it be with this evil generation. And Jesus is making His point. This generation of Israelites, this generation of Israelites that loved to have Jesus around them because of all the miracles that He did, they would welcome Jesus into their town. They would welcome Jesus into their home. Because Jesus, when, when, when Jesus taught, they were just in awe. When Jesus did the miracles, they received so many benefits and blessings from it. But they did not want him as Messiah. They wanted Jesus to fix their physical lives, but they didn't want Jesus to fix their soul. They wanted him for so that so that they could have their best life now. Rather than in other words, this prosperity gospel going on here. They wanted Jesus for all the goodies they could get. But discipleship? My life changing? Walking in obedience? Sacrifice service? Mm-mm. I'm not signing up for that. And Jesus says, So is this evil generation. They, this was the generation that had, had experienced an outward moral reformation. They listened to the preaching of John the Baptist who said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They, and, in other words, get your life ready because Messiah is coming. And they viewed Messiah as somebody who was going to, to bring the nation back where it should be. They recognized Messiah as somebody who would make sure that the, that the, the nation of Israel would, 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 would no longer be under the yoke of, of Rome. And, and so, okay, what do we got to do? What do we need to do to make sure we transform and change our lives? They listened to the message of Jesus when he told them to repent. And, 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 they, and they listened to that. And, and many of them, morally, they, their lives were transformed morally. They might have quit doing some of the things that they used to do. However, they failed to embrace by faith Jesus as their Messiah. And in doing so, they remained neutral towards his claims. And this neutrality left them vulnerable to an even worse invasion from Satan and judgment from God. Jesus, later on, Jesus earlier uh, in, in this text, when, he, when he's talking to them, look, look back at verse 30 of chapter 12. Remember when he made this statement, "...whoever is not with me is against me." and whoever does not gather with me scatters. In other words, there is no way, you can't be neutral with Jesus. There's no such thing as neutrality with Jesus. You can't be. You can't be. You're either for Him or you're against Him. And whether you're for Him or against Him is determined by how you live your life. It's how you live your life. And so, we find here that that, that, that Jesus makes that point, and As we continue reading in our text, Jesus is continuing to speak. And as He continues to speak, He is interrupted. And He takes the occasion of the interruption as an opportunity to instruct the people that cleaning up your life must begin on the inside. It must begin on the inside. Look at verse 46. Before and, and well look at verse forty six and forty-seven. He says, While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Someone told him, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside asking to speak to you. Now, we're going to take another theological excursus, okay? Or we're going to we're going to go down another rabbit trail, okay? We're going to take another theological excursus because these verses refute the doctrinal claim that was espoused by Epiphanius in the 4th century affirmed by R- Roman Catholicism today regarding the perpetual virginity of Mary. Okay, the perpetual uh, the perpetual virginity of Mary says this. Mary was a virgin prior to giving birth to Jesus, Mary remained a virgin after giving birth to Jesus. Mary never had any the only child Mary had was Jesus, and she was a virgin prior to would she, we, 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 we would say amen to that. Amen to that. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, and Mary was a special woman. She was, in one sense, the mother of God. She bore God. In that sense. I mean, that, that there's, there's nothing, depending on how you define that and where you go with that, will determine whether or not you're, you're heretical but she was a special woman, and she carried the Christ child. However, the perpetual virginity of Mary says that that was the only child she had. and She remained a virgin even after the birth of Jesus. And there's more to it than that. That's just a, a quick summary of it. So, its foundation, this foundation of this doctrine is found in the proto Protoevangelium of James, or which also is known as the Gospel of James, sometimes it's referred to as the Gospel, which was very popular when it was first written. It was very popular. It's a second-century writing, somewhere around about 120 BC, but it's also seen and viewed as, and this is one of my favorite a favorite word of mine, pseudepigraphal. Don't you like that word, pseudopigraphal? You know, I just I like to just how how that word sounds, pseudopigraphal. You know, next time you see, you suit you know. But, but, simply, but the, word just, the meaning of this word is just simply this. It means that it's a non-canonical book. In other words, it's not considered part of the Scripture. The Gospel of James was never considered a part of Scripture. It was a popular, back when it was first written, it was popular among the people. But as the church fathers got together to determine what, what, what books bear the mark of Scripture... It wasn't the church fathers to determine what Scripture was. It was the church fathers as they recognized these books are indeed Scripture. These books are indeed Scripture. The Gospel of James was never, ever, in any list of of, of canonical books, of books that were part of the Scriptures. Never. It's also being pseudepigraphal also means that it's unauthenticated. Not sure who wrote it. Not sure who wrote it. Now, who claims to write it is James, the half-brother of Jesus, just as we have our epistle of James. Who was, it was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. But there's no really true authentication as to whether or not James wrote this book. Pseudepigraphal works often, one of the things also about pseudepigraphal works, is they often present quote-unquote novel doctrines Novel doctrines, these new doctrines, these new revelations that are found nowhere else in Scripture. Found nowhere else in Scripture. You can't find them. You can't use Scripture to authenticate them. That doesn't mean that there's not some things in those writings that are true to Scripture, but that there are things in those writings that you can't find them anywhere else. They're novel. And according to this teaching, these brothers are considered one of two things. They are either cousins of Jesus and they base that on the word that's used there. It's translated brother, but it also can be a, a word that's talking about other relatives and that is true. It's a word that can be referring to, 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 to kin to other relatives, but also it's either these are either cousins of Jesus or they are sons of Joseph from a previous marriage. What the Gospel of James teaches is this is that Joseph wasn't an old, a really old dude when he got married to Mary when he had engaged to Mary and the reason the part of the reason why that is believed is because we know that Joseph was dead prior to Jesus's crucifixion we know he's still alive when Jesus is 12 but somewhere between the time when Jesus was 12 and Jesus was 30 Joseph dies he dies he's, he's not mentioned up he's not there at the cross he's not, he had in fact at the cross Jesus tells John to take care of Mary so that that would not be needed if Joseph was still alive. So the assumption is made, the assumption is made that Joseph had to be old. But that's not true. I mean, I had a brother-in-law, I had two brother-in-laws that died in their 40s. I had a brother that died in his 20s. So that's not true. You can die young. You can die young. But what's even more Specific about this is nothing in Scripture indicates this. In the canonical books, nothing indicates that these were Jesus's cousins or Jesus's brothers by Joseph's previous mar- marriage. Rather, tradition has been imposed upon the biblical text. And the thing that the thing that attacks Christ Himself—if these were older sons of Joseph by a previous marriage. Then the oldest of those sons would have had, would have, had the, would have been the legal heir to the throne of David, rather than Jesus, because when the genealogies are written in Matthew and Luke, and 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 Joseph's genealogy is given, it's presenting that that the the son of Joseph is the legal heir to the throne of David, the son of Joseph is the legal heir to the throne of David. Now, G- Joseph was not Jesus' biological father, but he was his father in the sense that he took him and he, 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 made, he adopted him and made him his own. He was the son of Joseph in that sense. In that sense. And so, if Joseph had older sons by a previous marriage, then though the firstborn of that, that son would have been the legal heir to the throne of David and not Jesus and not Jesus. When you look at the Scriptures, proper exegesis, and the clear meaning of Scripture, what's the clear meaning of Scripture? Brother means brother. That's the clear meaning of Scripture. Proper exegesis and the clear meaning of Scripture unequivocally teaches that these brothers are the physical sons of Mary. And that's important. And the reason why this is important is because Jesus is making an argument here about who truly is his family. Now, he's not, he's not being mean to his physical family. But he's talking about, when he's talking about here, his, when, he, when he mentions in the text, he says, uh, uh, here are my mother and my brothers. He's not saying that there's a bunch of mothers out there, you know. But, but he's saying, our mothers, and listen, there are, there are only three people, three people that share, that, that, that have the DNA of Taylor, And Phyllis Adams. The same kind of DNA as as me, my sister, and my brother. Now, my grandkids have some of their DNA. But there's only three people. And so there is a sense that we talk about our near relatives and our far relatives. Jesus is talking here about the closest and the intimate relationship that you can have with family. And that is physically your parents and your brothers and sisters. You are connected to them by blood. You are connected to them by DNA. Your brothers and sisters and your parents. And that's the point Jesus is making. That's the point that Jesus is making here. So you look at the background. Verses 46 and 47, Jesus is still speaking. Somebody comes up and interrupts him in verse 7. His says, hey, your mother and your brothers are standing outside. What's interesting... Is that in Mark's account, we are informed in chapter 3 and verse 21 that the reason why they're there is because they believe Jesus is insane. They think he's lost his mind. His mother and his brothers think he has lost his mind. You've got to read the context. You go up to chapter 3 and verse 21. And in fact, let's just take the time. Let's just take the time to do it to show you. Mark chapter 3 and verse 21. It says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. By the way, that word seize is the same word that is used to describe when Jesus is arrested. They went out to seize him, for they were saying, He's out of his mind. He's out of his mind. And then you read on, you find the bells above situation, and then in verse 31, his mothers and his brothers come, and they're standing outside to call him. They think Jesus is gone. They think he's nuts. They think... He's nuts, but Jesus uses this interruption to instruct on the priority that our priority of relationship is anchored in spirituality, and not genealogy. Again, look at verse forty-nine, back in our text, where Jesus says, and He stretched out His hand towards His disciples, and He said, "Here are My mother, and here are My brothers." Relationship with God is not anchored in genealogy. In that case, he's letting them know relationship with God is not anchored in whether or not you're a descendant of Abraham. Relationship with God is anchored in spirituality. Your relationship to me, Jesus is saying. If you're related to me, not physically, because he's saying you want to know who my troops, my, my mother is? Again, he's not denying that Mary's his mother, and he's not denying that his brothers are his brothers. He's saying to have the kind of relationship with God. Again, remember, he's talking to people who are rejecting him. He's talking to people who have said, you're not Messiah, your power is sourced in Satan. He's talking to people who have looked at him and are neutral towards him. And he's saying, you think, especially the Pharisees, you think you have a relationship with God. You think you have connection to God. Let me talk to you about what family is. Family goes beyond. The family of God is not about who you're connected to physically. The family of God is about who you are connected to spiritually. You're connected to me, then we are brothers and sisters brothers and sisters, our priority of relationship is anchored in spirituality, not genealogy. And in verse 50, our priority of relationship is authenticated by obedience to the will of God. I can say I'm related to God. I can say I have a relationship with Him. But there is a way by which that relationship can be authenticated. And look at verse 50. He says, For whoever... That includes anyone, Jew, Gentile. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Our priority of relationship is authenticated by obedience to the will of God. Now, what's the will of God? Well, as we think about it within this context, we can think about it in this way. The will of God is this. The recognition of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is who He says He is. He's the Son of God. He's God the Son. He is the only hope of being made acceptable to the Father. The only hope of being made acceptable to the Father. The only way that I can have a relationship... the The only way that I can call God my Father is to have and believe in and put my trust in what the Scripture says about me and what it says about Jesus. That there's nothing in me that can can cause me to be good enough in the eyes of God. Nothing. But Jesus Christ took on Himself flesh. The second person of the Trinity added to to His being humanity. He's all God, and He's all man. And He lived a life that I couldn't live and offered up that life as a substitute for my life, and as a sacrifice for my sin. And he took God's full wrath upon him. And when I recognize that I am unable to save myself, I am unable to make myself acceptable to God, and when I put my faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, I've obeyed His will. Today's the day of salvation. Today's the day of salvation. I've obeyed His will. But also, it's the transformation of Christ being formed in me. The will of God is, as a believer, now that I'm a believer, the will of God is, God, transform me and shape me and form Christ within me. In other words, make me more like Jesus. And that's going to look, I mean, the goal is the same, but, but my struggles may not be your struggles. Now, we all struggle with sin, that's that's the commonality that we have and we all probably struggle with some of the same sins but there are some sins that I struggle with more than you do and vice versa and the character of Christ needs to be formed in me and and that priority of relationship is demonstrated by the fact of not necessarily how well I'm doing but I'm, but I'm moving in that direction again I Again, this is my personal opinion. I, I think that when we stand before God, we're certainly going to be judged for the works that we've done. But I also, And we're going to be judged for the motives, the reason why we've done it. But I also think that, that God is going to, to, to... One of the things that God is taking in consideration is, did we continue to persevere even after we failed? Because we're going to fail. And, I, 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 and there's, and there's going to be some struggles that we have to the day we die, to, to the very last breath I take. There's going to be some struggles, but are we, are we, are we struggling well? Are we fi- Paul said, you know, Paul didn't say, I won the victory. Paul said, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. I've kept the faith. That's part of this idea as it relates to the will of God. Our priority of relationship is authenticated by our obedience to the will of God. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. Now, I was taught when I grew up to, re- to respect all adults. So I probably, pro- I may have, I, I probably thought it, probably would have never said that. If I had another adult tell me, hey, Greg, you need to stop doing that. You're not my daddy. Huh. you know. Now, I will tell you this, my grandkids <laughs> have said that. You're not my mama. You're not my daddy. You know? And I won't. But but anyhow, you know. But but some but but some if, if somebody came in here today that you didn't know, and told your kids to do something, they probably they probably wouldn't do it, and probably rightly so. You're not my daddy. You're not my mama. But now, if mom and dad says it, I better do it. I'm expected to obey their wishes, expected to obey their will, and it's the same way with God. We demonstrate. The fact that we have an authentic relationship with Him when we're willing to walk in obedience to Him and we do walk in obedience to Him. Our priority of relationship is authenticated by obedience to the will of God. This makes repossession impossible. And it makes demon oppression ineffectual. Why? Well, because the change is not merely external. An internal change has occurred. And to use modern phraseology, Jesus is in the house. Jesus is in the house. This is the house. And Jesus is in the house. And if Jesus is in the house, the demon's not going to be in the house. And if Jesus is in the house, I'm going to seek to walk with him in, in harmony. And demon oppression will be ineffectual. Because... Jesus is in the house. Yesterday, you all know what yesterday was. Reformation Day. I know you're going to. Say, I know. I, I know you're going to say how. Uh, listen, I know none of you are going to say Halloween. Okay, y'all are theologic, theologically astute enough. You're going to say Reformation Day. I'm going to give Kendall or Kendrick a hard time if he was here today. I heard him tell somebody, uh, just just to tease him. I heard him say Happy Hall. He said Happy Halloween. I said, Kendrick, with your theological knowledge, you know you should have said Happy Reformation Day, you know. But anyhow, I digress. But you know, just just. But yesterday was Reformation Day, okay? It was Reformation Day, and while Reformation is good for the church, one of the one of the, one of the, the tenets of the reformers is the fact that the church should always be reforming. The church should always be looking at itself to make sure that it's that it's adhering to Scripture. It, it doesn't we can fall this church can fall into doing things by tradition rather than by doing by scripture so the church is constantly in need of reform and while that is good for the church and it's good for houses that have seen better days mere moral reformation is dangerous to the to the, to the individual as human beings we once for all need the transformational work of God in our lives to deliver us from the penalty of sin. I don't need reformation. I need transformation. I need God to transform me. I can try to clean myself up as much as I want to, and I might even live a more a better a more a more uh, uh, a life that is um, more ethical. I may lead a life that is more moral than some believers. But that's not what saves you. That's not what makes you right with the. I mean, there's there's some there's some people who don't know Christ that I, I trust them some more than I trust some believers. They claim to be Christ. They claim they claim to follow Christ. It's not about it, it, what. It's not about reformation. We need transformation, for God to change our hearts, for God to, to 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 save us and and to be to use the phrase to be born again by the Spirit of God. And not only that, but we need the daily transformational work of God in our lives to deliver us from the power of sin. Every day, I need God transforming my life. Every day, I, I need to look at my life and see where I'm falling short and see where I'm not being a servant and see where I'm not serving others and see where I'm not loving others by serving them. To see where I'm, I, I gripe and complain to God. Am I, am I truly rejoicing because, as Larry said, this is the day that the Lord has made. I'll rejoice and be glad in it. That's easy to say today. Today hard to say when you get the cancer diagnosis. Or some of the things, I know Larry heard some and I heard some of, of people who are just really struggling. I had people that prayed with, my husband's incarcerated, Will you pray for our family. Our, our marriage is struggling. We pray for us. I'm not make, These are requests. We heard yesterday. I'm a single mom and my kids aren't in school. It's hard for me to work because I can't take my kids. I may be homeless in a month or two. Every day, every day, we need the work of God in our lives. Not only only the fact that we've been delivered from the penalty of sin, but to deliver us from the power of sin. Putting off is of no avail unless you and I also put on. It's no avail to clean the house and sweep it and order it and make it all clean if we don't invite Jesus into it demon was able to come back because the house was empty it's empty are you placing your confidence in moral reformation or spiritual regeneration what needs to be put off in your life what needs to be put on it's not enough to put off you have to put on as well and praise God that, our, that the Father in Christ, by the Spirit, cleans us up from the inside out. Back when I was a, a fundamentalist with a capital F, capital U, capital N, I took the fun out of fundamentalism, okay? When I was very legalistic, Very opinionated. I still am on that. Very um, self righteous. And I remember, you know, when I was in Bible college, especially my first year, I remember Jeff telling me, he said, Man, Greg, you've been brainwashed. (laughs) You know, I mean, I. I, It's bad. I, I was a good Pharisee, I was a great Pharisee. So-so Bible college student, but I was a great Pharisee. And I remember mom and dad's pastor, they were attending First Baptist Church of Okeechobee. Of course, there's a Southern Baptist church, and what kind of Southern Baptists teach an independent fundamental KJV, Red Letter Edition, they teach us, you know? And I remember him saying, you know what? If you get the inside clean, the outside you Get the inside clean and the outside usually takes care of itself and may God help us to focus our lives I'm not saying ignore the outside but may God help us to focus our hearts and lives on who's in the house and ask God to do a heart change work in us because that's what will change us Outside, start taking care of itself. We will start doing things differently. Our attitudes will change. Our focus changes. Our heart is humble. Our spirit becomes meek. God does a transformational work that is impossible for us to do. And he keeps it going. I can do most anything for a little while. But not for the long haul. But when God changes from the inside out, it's the long haul. It's the long haul. Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence and we thank you for your word and for its instruction to us. Lord, we pray that you would help us as we seek to walk in your ways. Help us to examine our hearts today, Father, and Place ourselves under the scriptures, under its authority, because it's your word. We don't worship the scriptures, but we do worship the God who wrote them. And the scriptures are given to us so that we can know you and so that our lives can be ordered by you as we live in the power of the spirit because of who we are. So, Lord, we ask today that you would make that change in our lives. Help us to focus on our hearts, our attitudes. Help us, Father, to focus on that what's going on outwardly is the reflection, the overflow of what's taking place inwardly. And, Lord, I pray you transform us. Transform us from the inside out. Lord, we just thank You for who You are for Your work of grace in our lives. If we pray these things in Christ's name through the Spirit. His heads are bowed and eyes are closed. We don't have an altar call, as you know, but we do have a time of invitation where we want to invite you to speak to the Lord. Uh, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, call on Him today. If you're not certain what that means or what that looks like, we have men and women here today that can can help you and show you what it means to to call upon the name of the Lord. If you're a believer here today and there's areas in your life that needs to be changed, go to Him. Yes, there's things that we need to do. There's there's physical changes that will need to take place. There there are things that we can do that can help us in that. But it it always, definite, true, lasting change always begins in the heart. Always begins. We're going to have a time, a moment of silence, and allow the Lord to work on our hearts today.